Uh, let's uh, start with prayer. Um, so, Lord be with you. Also with you. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one Lord, forever and ever. Amen. Um, if you haven't yet gotten a notebook, they're free, and if nothing else, it's like, you know, it's a really nice one-inch binder. Um, there are places in here for you to take notes, however you can take as many or as few notes and write down as many or as few questions as you want. All the main bullet points are going to be in here. Uh, the main bullet points are also up on the PowerPoint. Um, I'm, I will be extemporizing, uh, really won't be extemporizing, I've, I've got it all on notes, but um, on, on those bullet points, but, um, but you will need a notebook, uh, it'll be on the test. Just, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so this spring and into the fall, like for a long, long time, I know, I'm hoping to make it not seem like a long, long time. We'll be studying the wisdom literature, which are the books of Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Some authors, I think it's the majority of authors, don't consider Song of Solomon wisdom. I always have. Uh, however, if every single Old Testament scholar agreed that it wasn't, I guess I'd have to agree with him. I'm not an Old Testament scholar. My area is systematic theology. However, the uh, astute Old Testament scholar Dwayne Garrett, uh, some of whom you may know, he's at Southern. He did teach at St. Francis. He may still teach at St. Francis Episcopal Church. Uh, like me, considers content more important than genre. So while Solomon is literally just love poetry. Uh, the content is, is wisdom. It's to make us wise in certain areas, specifically uh, romance, intimacy, and sex, whatever else you may have heard about that. Um, these are some of the more neglected books of the Bible, maybe not as neglected as Leviticus, but they're up there. Um, two of the books, Job and Ecclesiastes, are the most perplexing and difficult books of the Bible. I'm exaggerating slightly, but, you know, there's a different interpretation of Job and Ecclesiastes for every single interpreter. Um, that's a hyperbole. Um, Proverbs is often taken as little more than holy self-help advice. And it works on calendars. And it's not bad on calendars either. Um, it's not a proverb, but it's a psalm. I, I like one of the psalm verses so much I tore it off the calendar and put it up you know, in the window by, by my office and computer. But it's more important than that, obviously. And Song of Songs, as I mentioned, is intriguing, but um, I've only heard one sermon in my entire life um, on Song of Songs, and it was wrong. Um, <laughs> so we don't quite know what to do with it. So we'll talk about that, too. Um, so we're... Uh, no, that was Ecclesiastes. I never heard one on Ecclesiastes either, uh, except the one I preached. 
Um, and that was back when I was a seminary student, so that was probably wrong too. Um, no one should ever be held responsible for what they do in seminary. Um, anyway, uh, let's see, yes. So we're going to be studying and seeking wisdom. Um, we can't do a verse-by-verse uh, verse or even paragraph-by-paragraph paragraph study. Um, we're looking at four books, all of which are pretty long. Uh, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Um, so what I'm going to do is hopefully facilitate your own personal understanding and reading. Um, and I'll make one recommendation right now. Proverbs, in a lot, probably most, of uh, through-the-year Bible programs, which, which are a good idea. You know, you do Old Testament, New Testament, and then a psalm and a proverb. Uh, Proverbs is okay one at a time, but really it's really good to read through the whole book at once. And we're studying Proverbs first, so we'll talk about why that is when we get there next week. Today is going to be an introduction to wisdom literature. Um, reading wisdom literature is one way to study and seek wisdom. And if we do that, we're going to be rebels to the cultural status quo. And this is because we live in a society and a culture, and I don't think I'm saying anything particularly controversial, a particularly popular culture that does not value wisdom or virtue or righteousness. It's not that there are no wise, virtuous, or righteous individuals uh, in, in this country or in Western culture in general. It's just that this is not part of the foundational value system of this culture anymore. It used to be, but it is not. Uh, our postmodern culture values and pursues above all else on the, on the popular level, fame and notoriety, sexuality and money. Power would be in there too. But. And there is an increasing gap between what the culture counts as wisdom and actual wisdom and just uh, engage in a few seconds of you know self-visualization and fill in the blanks of what you might count is uh, the opposite of wisdom because I'm not going to spend any time analyzing the culture or its many examples of unwisdom and anti-wisdom that would take the whole year too I think it's enough to say that seeking wisdom is now a countercultural activity so we are the resistance um, and if, if I had, couldn't get the PowerPoint to work, it wouldn't be a, a tragedy, except I really wanted to show this meme. This is a current meme going through social media. You can put what you want in the bottom. But this is actually, there's a truth to this. Um, if you really want to stand against the culture, well, raise your children differently than the culture would. Um, and Proverbs particularly, but all of wisdom literature, was intended for education in the home in, in Israel. I mean, there weren't really any schools except for scholars, well, scribes and Pharisees, etc. cetera. Uh, but uh, for the rest of us, too, it also applies <coughs> this way. And, and everyone in between, okay? Let's see. So... So the, why should we study wisdom? Well, the biblical books of wisdom are important because they teach us how to live in the real world. 
Uh, yes, I'm on the right slide. The world that God created, that, that is a controversial statement now, that God created this world, uh, and for which he established its material and moral order and purpose. And I think even sometimes Christians forget this. There is a definitive order to this universe. Um, and we'll talk about that more in just a few moments. It's not only the religious world or the church world, but the world in which we live and move and have our being and hang out with our friends and work jobs and get married and have children and grandchildren and in which we laugh and mourn and cry and celebrate that world, the real world. That's the world God created. And the order and purpose comes from him. It's also not the imagined and often delusional world of mass media, pop culture, or radical secularism. And again, I'm afraid if I got into discussing examples of the delusional world of particularly secularism, I would digress, so I won't. It's the world as God created it. In the secular worldview, the view and spirit of our age, we don't live in a creation. Uh, That is a world made and made intelligible by a good creator. According to the secular view, the non-religious view, uh, the view that does not take God into account or accept or defer to a transcendent order. In the secular view, we live in a world of mere matter and motion upon which the human self and imagination can impose its will. Now, that's false, and we're also going to see why in a few moments, why if you start from those premises, that the world is not a creation, and that you may impose your will on it, you will never gain wisdom. So the real world... um, The real world is a creation that God invested with his own beauty, harmony, and purity, yet it is also a world that has fallen in which men and women and history and sometimes nature don't work in accord with the way things ought to be and the way they originally were and someday will be again. Wisdom takes all of this into account and shows us how we might put our feet on the path that leads in the direction that original beauty, harmony, and purity, even though in this lifetime we can only partially realize and embrace those things. We, we live in a sinful world. We know we're going to fail, but we need to be pointed in the right direction. So the wisdom books are primary sources and the chief means of navigating this path. They are primary sources for training and spiritual and moral knowledge, virtue and practical wisdom. And I'll just, again, give a nod to classical and Christian education. Public education is no longer about training and character and virtue. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm saying that's not what they focus on, which was the focus on education until probably John Dewey ruined it, but let's not go there either. uh, I, I, I have a degree in, in education from the University of Maryland, and we had to study John Dewey. Um, but the emphasis is just on technique uh, and you know, being successful in the material world. Anyway, uh, practical wisdom for children as well as adults and guides for walking in the spirit. 
cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. Do I have the references up there? Yes, I do. Um, I won't read them, but you can refer to them if you want. Uh, and resisting being molded by the cultural zeitgeist. That's German for the spirit and mindset of the age in which we find ourselves. There is a definite, I mean, there's obviously a clash going on in this culture. Again, I don't want to diverge, digress too much between, between worldviews. But the predominant zeitgeist is uh, clearly that of a material world in which we mold. But that's the opposite of what wisdom literature is going to tell us. So we need to resist being molded by the cultural zeitgeist as the Apostle Paul exhorts us in Romans 12:1-2. Do not be conformed to this world, he said, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So this, this class is designed to facilitate personal study and understanding. Um, again, I don't have time to do a verse by verse. We're doing that in men's Bible study on Sunday, which starts next Sunday. Uh, but we're looking at one book um, very carefully. Here we're going to look at four books and give a broad overview. So gaining an understanding of wisdom like gaining athletic skill requires personal effort. And so I hope what I'm going to do will help you uh, do that and give a good overview and provide some useful guidelines. Let's see. What is wisdom? Well, that's a good question. So what is wisdom? Glad you ask. Um, you'll get a lot of different definitions, but um, they all boil down to this, although some will not focus on shalom. Uh, and I'll talk about that more in just a second. Biblically, wisdom is knowledge, understanding, and practice that lead towards shalom in personal community and national life. This is what is a successful life, biblically speaking. Not getting rich. There's nothing wrong with getting rich if you do it honestly, by the way. Don't, I mean, no, I, that would be a digression, too. I, I am a capitalist, just so you know, and um, I think honest effort is a good thing. And you'll find that in the book of Proverbs. However, successful living is living that leads to shalom. Um, shalom, you may have heard that, uh, is a Hebrew word that is frequently translated peace and occasionally prosperity. <coughs> But the meaning is actually more expansive than either one of those words separately or both together. Um, let me see. ABC. Right. Shalom in its fullest sense refers to human life before God in holiness, harmony, creativity, and abundant joy with oneself, with others, and with creation in accordance with the way God has made the world accordance with the way God has made the world. And so you cannot be heading toward shalom unless you are living in accordance with the way the world actually is, which is the way God has made it. So in Proverbs 3, 1 and 2, the wise father tells his son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Now, this, th that is they will bring you shalom. The, the, the Hebrew word there is shalom. 
A lot of people use Proverbs to preach what's called the prosperity gospel. That's not only just wrong, obviously, uh, but it's not what Proverbs teaches. Uh, Proverbs 3.17 personifies wisdom as a woman whose ways are pleasant and all her paths are shalom. Uh, I think in most English translations it's going to be peace. Theologian Cornelius Plantiga, who's, I don't know, maybe most famous for being the brother of Alvin Plantiga, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin, describes the Old Testament of Shalom this way. And I could not come up with a better um, descriptive exposition myself, so I'm just going to read his. So he says this about Shalom. The webbing together, this is Shalom, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call Shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator, as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Now, Plantinga's book is wise, but it's not necessarily a book that focuses on wisdom. I, I picked this because not only he has such a good explanation of it, but he describes sin in this book as the vandalism of shalom. That's not all that sin is, but that's what the vandalism as shalom. I think that's a deeply apt phrase. So sometimes, I'm not saying that sin is, uh, or morality are circumstantial necessarily or situational, but if, if it promotes shalom, if you're loving your neighbor, then, then that's not against the law. The promotion of shalom, the seeking of shalom, that fulfills the law. So I can't think of a better way to characterize the effect of secular culture's anti-wisdom on individuals and communities is the vandalism of shalom. This vandalism has come about because our secularized society has largely abandoned the first principle of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And again, I, I don't view this as controversial, so I don't, I'm not going to argue for it. Um, even when uh, militant atheism is not the issue. Um, I, I'm not saying that, that atheist groups are running the country, but I'm saying that uh, what philosopher Charles Taylor called the imminent frame to our social reality uh, pretty much ignores God in all its thinking and acting and projecting and expressing. Um, and that will never lead to wisdom and it will never lead to shalom. So I want to focus on an actual dispositional and practical definition of the fear of the Lord rather than an emotive or expressive one. I think that's a topic worth dis 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 
exploring, you know, what, what does fear of the Lord mean to me on, on an emotional and evocative level. I'm, I'm not dismissing it. But there's a lot of disagreement on that. Uh, some people say that fear doesn't mean actual fear, it just means deep respect. I happen to think it means actual fear. I mean, I think you should be afraid. Well, Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but be afraid of the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. So I think fear is part of it. It's not heebie-jeebie, terrible fears like at a horror movie, um, but it is fear. It is deep respect and awe. So this is another definition which, and I read that and said, I literally cannot say this better myself, so I won't. So this is from, uh, came across this in, in our Romans Bible study last, last semester. This is by John Murray in his uh, commentary on Romans, a Scottish New Testament scholar. The fear of the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, means that God is constantly in the center of our thought and apprehension. And life is characterized by the all-pervasive consciousness of dependence on him and responsibility to him. And, and I think that's the case when it comes to, uh, again, dispositional and volitional. How, how do we, what is our attitude towards God and how do we act towards God? Um, you know, as far as feelings are concerned, I admit to feeling afraid of God because I'm, I'm he's God and I'm not. Um, who wouldn't be, you should be afraid, I think, of the all-powerful creator of the universe. I'm afraid of disappointing him. That might be, you know, we all have hangovers from our relationships with our own father, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's best to, to look at it this way, the way that Murray does. And it's, it's, it's something that we could do something about. Uh, emotions and uh, feelings like that sometimes come unbidden. Sometimes we have to work through them. But this is something we can actually, it can change your attitude. And you can steer your disposition in a specific direction. <coughs> um, I wanted to pause for questions, but I'm afraid I'd run out of time. So try and, and have time at the end. Um, and I would only add that the God we are to fear is not a generic deity, but the covenant God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who created the heavens and the earth. We are to fear Him. So the fear of the Lord is the fundamental recognition that it is God alone who is the foundation of reality and ultimately the only source of wisdom. So without this recognition, we fail to even see what reality is as it is. We don't even set our feet on the path of wisdom. This recognition of the one true God is also the first of component of what we'll call the worldview of wisdom, uh, an encompassing view and understanding of all reality. Um, and that starts with, there is one God who is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the worldview of wisdom literature is, of course, identical with the biblical worldview as a whole. 
um, you might call it a theology, but, um, and so in doing this, I'm just gonna focus on certain key elements that are highlighted in the wisdom literature. This in particular, and then God is the sole sovereign creator of the world and humanity. If you don't recognize these two, you will never reach wisdom. I mean, it doesn't mean, um, I think there are degrees of what we might call wisdom with scare quotes. There are people who are very technically proficient in what they do, and I appreciate that. Patiently comes with people who draw your blood, stick needles in your arms. Um, I had the absolutely only painless needle stick I've ever had, like uh, on Thursday. Uh, and and I, I told this young woman I really appreciated that. So there are people who become competent in their fields. There are people who have common sense. There aren't, it's not common. Okay, that's a proverb now too. Common sense isn't all that common. But to truly know wisdom, you, you have to start with the basic fact of reality, which is there is a God and he created the universe as it is. Uh, creation, including humanity, has a material order and a moral order established by God. You just can't do whatever you want. Um, well, I mean, up to a point, I, when I taught this to high school students, I'd say, well, you can do whatever you want if you don't mind either dying or going to jail. Okay, so there are consequences in this lifetime to our actions and our character. Um, all human actions receive just recompense from God. Now this is particularly in focus in the book of Proverbs. And then Job questions that. Not really dismisses it, but has questions about what it might mean. Uh, but um, the Apostle Paul says clearly in Romans too that we will be judged by what we do. Um, don't, that's, that's apart from the gospel. Um, and then character is destiny. Um, you, you will be who you will be. Um, and again, I don't have time to, to, to delve into those things in detail, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. Um, so if you have a question, jot that down and I'll try and get to it when we finish up. It is important to emphasize that this is not just a religious view of reality. It is the way reality is. The Bible is not a book about religion. It is a book about reality. Um, there are contemporary implications to this. I'm going to put these somewhat philosophically, but uh, I think they really relate to the world as it is now, so they're helpful. So the first one is, is that reality is determinate. Well, you know, like, duh. But this, this is disputed. All of these are disputed. In a postmodern world, reality is whatever your truth tells you it is. You know, and you can, you can mold it, in, including, including your gender, uh, to your desires, designs, or delusions. And no, you can't. You, you really can't. I, I, again, I'm not going to try and argue for these right now because, well, it's not a philosophy class. <clears throat> and wisdom literature doesn't put it exactly this way, but it does, you can infer that from what it says. Truth is one objective, absolute, and indivisible. It cannot be overridden by what you consider my truth or your lived experience. 
to phrases that are getting much too much airplay. But uh, the truth is the truth. And what is God's truth? Well, uh, God's perspective on things is the truth. Um, so I won't get into a lengthy philosophical discussion of that either. Good and evil, right and wrong, are real and objective moral distinctions. You don't feel something is right. You know it's right or you know it's wrong, and you act accordingly. They are grounded in God's character and will, and they are not just human-generated values or personal preferences. Again, these are strongly implied by what all the wisdom literature says. <coughs> Excuse me. Personal identity is not self-determined nor infinitely malleable. It is formed in relationship and community. Now, this is something we all suffer from, the idea that our identity is completely our own and that we need to express it how we will. This is called uh, individual self-expression or self-expressive individualism or how Plantinga put it, what did he put it? Uh, aggressive self-regard. Uh, this is the idea that somehow there's, you are almost a spark of divinity and you just need to express that, but that's not true. Um, I will digress slightly. I used to use a, 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 an illustration where I said, imagine a baby left by itself in the wilderness and somehow it survives physically, which of course couldn't happen, but and the baby grew up without any human contact whatsoever. Well, that, you know, no community, no individuals, no mother, no father. Uh, not raised by wolves, because that's a myth. Um, <laughs> will, that, will that child even know who it was? No. Our, our identities, now we are unique. I'm not going to say we don't have God-given attributes and characteristics. But we don't even realize what they are except in relation to other people. This, by the way, is an intimation of the Trinity. And uh, I'm just going to have to say that's enough said for now. We'll actually come back to that idea um, in Advent when we discuss the Song of Solomon. There's one other implication uh, that I thought of after I finished the PowerPoint. It's that... Excuse me, the material and moral order of the universe cannot be disregarded with impunity. That's the philosophical way of putting it. The material and moral order of the universe cannot be disregarded with impunity. Colloquially speaking, and nobody ever gets away with anything. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced with that. Nobody ever gets away with anything. Oh, you, you, the, the, the penalty for your actions might be held in abeyance even throughout this entire lifetime. And I guess if you believe there is no afterlife, you might think you might get away with it, but you don't get away with it. Nobody ever gets away with anything. Uh, that applies in every age, age and culture. And the contemporary denial of these implications is foolish, delusional, anti-wisdom. Within this biblical worldview, which we can also call the theological aspect of wisdom literature, Wisdom displays different aspects or facets. Uh, moral facet, practical, relational, existential, all tied together by the theological. That is, the reference to God and transcendent reality. Um, 
The moral facet of wisdom emphasizes righteousness and behaviors that are wise and good and encourage shalom, contrasting them with behaviors that are foolish, wicked, and vandalize shalom. The practical facet focuses on skills and strategies for a well-managed and successful life and warns against habits that lead to self-indulgence or failed and dissolute life. Like, do not love sleep over much or you will come to poverty. And that's one I have to keep reminding myself of. I love sleep. You know, it's just like, well, I'm aging myself, but you know, when you get older, you realize, boy, I sure miss, I sure miss naps like when I was a kid. Uh, kids get to a certain age, they hate naps. And then kids get to a different age like mine, and then you really like naps again. Um, the relational fat, as a matter of fact, I'll probably go home and take a nap after lunch. <laughs> you laugh, but that's probably exactly what I'm going to do. Um, although I st we have to take down Christmas stuff, I'm sure you... The relational facet focuses on pr promoting harmony, unity, and joy between family members, colleagues, and neighbors, uh, and friends and lovers, and spouses. The existential facet deals with difficult questions of life about meaning and hope in the face of suffering and death, frustration and futility in a fallen world, and all of us experience that. Reflected in all wisdom teaching is the theological facet, the focus on God and his created order, and how the fear of the Lord and a covenant relationship with God are the keys to wisdom. And I know you might have a lot of questions, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to go right up to 11.45, so feel free to write them down. And I may decide next week to just start with questions, okay? Um, oh, literary forms and wisdom literature. Uh, a final thing to consider in understanding the wisdom books is the literary forms they contain. How something is spoken or written has a lot to do with what it means. What we might read in poetry might not be the same thing we might read in a technical manual. Uh, and this is going to be a very brief overview. First of all, there is didactic speech. Uh, it's all over the place, but particularly in Proverbs 1 through 6. And this is in Proverbs 1, the uh, first couple of verses, but basically the prologue in 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the young. So this is the purpose statement of Proverbs, stated in very direct speech. Uh, didactic means direct teaching. Calling it a lecture would probably not be too far from the truth. Um, even within didactic speech, though, there's going to be figures of speech, poetic passages, and vivid imagery. Not in this particular passage, but in some others. Um, next one is drama. Uh, I'm using the term drama a bit loosely, but I believe Job, for example, can be described as an historical drama, primarily in poetic form. Uh, it has a prose epilogue, a prologue and epilogue. It has a protagonist, antagonist, a plot, a climax, and a denouement. <coughs> it wasn't written as a dramatic play, but it would work as one. 
Uh, same thing with Revelation. Revelation was not written as a play, but it would work as one. I've seen it as one and performed at the seminary. It's pretty cool. Uh, there are also dramatic elements in the Song of Solomon. Um, uh, stories and parables. Within the book of Proverbs, there are parable-like stories and story-like parables, such as the story of the wayward woman in Proverbs 7, we'll look at that when we get to Proverbs, and the story of the wife of noble character in Proverbs 31. Um, I'll mention this, uh, Proverbs in particular, but of course uh, all of wisdom literature was written in a patriarchal society. On the other hand, it's interesting that Proverbs not only begins and ends with stories about women, it personifies wisdom as a woman. Song of Solomon seems to be a cycle of poetic stories built around the characters of the lover and his beloved. Um, and some would interpret it as a single story. Uh, personal reflections, they are pauses in which an author shares an experience or contemplation that bears on the subject at hand. In Proverbs 4, a father teaching wisdom to his son reflects on his own experiences as a boy in my father's house. I remember when I was a boy, I had to walk up hill both ways to school. Anyway, Job chapter 28 is a long reflection by the author of Job on the difficulty of finding wisdom. We'll look at that when we get to Job. In Ecclesiastes 9, uh, the weary teacher of Ecclesiastes reflects on the seeming randomness and unfairness of life and humanity's common destiny of death, concluding that the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happens to them all. In other words, life happens, then you die. <coughs> Um, and we'll discuss that when we get to Ecclesiastes 2. Uh, then there are sayings. A lot of wisdom is couched in sayings or proverbs. There are a lot of proverbs in the book of Proverbs. Uh, and we'll look at more of the characteristic of proverbs when we get to the book of Proverbs. And then finally, although that doesn't actually exhaust him, poetry. Um, the most prevalent literary form in wisdom literature is poetry. Most of it's written in Hebrew poetic form. The Song of Songs is all poetry. Job is a set of poetic dialogues with a prose epilogue, prose epilogue and prologue. Um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes have many sayings and reflections in poetic form and a brief look at some of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry will help us to both understand and enjoy wisdom literature more deeply. Well, first of all, Hebrew poetry does not rhyme or have meter. So the, the first, now this is not gonna be, if you're a poet or study Hebrew poetry, I apologize, this is gonna be very cursory. Um, some of the uh, things in Hebrew poetry don't translate. There's a lot of plays on words and puns and things like that. Terseness is compactness and brevity of expression. The terseness of Hebrew poetry is clear enough in English but even more pronounced in the original. For example, in English, Proverbs 26.11 typically reads, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. 
A more literal word-for-word -word translation would be something like, a dog returns to vomit, a fool to folly. That's very catchy. This is also an example of figurative language, is it not? Um, uh, even without like or as, we recognize a simile. Hebrew poetry also has metaphors, metonyms, hyperbole, personification. I'll refer you back to your uh, English and composition classes in high school. Uh, our dog fool simile is also an example of vivid imagery. Um, very vivid, especially if you've seen a dog return to its own vomit <laughs> and eat it. I have. It's a, it's a vivid image you can't forget. So that's what a fool is. A more pleasant example is Proverbs 25:12, Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. Uh, this proverb is also an example of a prominent feature called parallelism. And very quickly, I'm going to mention that there are these many kinds of parallelism, because I can see I'm running out of time. Got about five minutes left. Much Hebrew poetry is in couplets or matched half verses, in which the second half in some way parallels the first half. Uh, Proverbs 25.12, like an earring is a wise man, is an example of synonymous parallelism in which the two halves reflect the same or a similar thought. It's also the type of synonymous parallelism called emblematic, in which one half of the verse is meant to be taken literally, a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear, and the other half <coughs> figuratively, like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold. Uh, Proverbs 12.18 is an example of antithetic parallelism. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And the two verse halves present contrasting positions on the same topic. Again, we see figurative language, uh, piercing like a sword, uh, the tongue of the wise bringing healing. That's figurative, but sometimes it's also, it's true. It brings psychological healing. Um, and again, we also see figurative language and vim vivid imagery. Finally, synthetic parallelism is a form in which the second half of the verse builds on or completes the idea in the first half. Like Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Um, and I think I may have to end with this. Um, there's a brief summary of each book, but I'm not sure I have time for it, unless you all want to stay a couple extra minutes. Uh, the purpose of these forms isn't just adornment or pleasure. Now, we often think of poetry, uh, if we even read poetry, as just entertainment. Um, and most poetry these days is, is in songs and, and popular music. That is poetry set to music. But the purpose of these Hebrew literary forms, including and especially poetry, teaching and memorization, um, I can't remember the whole point, but when I thought about this, I think, well, what thing can you teach? Well, listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Now, I admit I've forgotten most of the rest of that, but one if by land, two if by sea. But, and I memorized that when I was a kid. And, and, you know, 
it's fairly accurate, and it's a good teaching device. Um, and memorization, too. When things have a nice literary feel to them, they're easier to memorize. When I first started memorizing verses, I did it in the King James. And sometimes I still can't remember a modern English version, but I'll remember the King James. Um, second thing is evoking practical, moral, and spiritual imagination and desire. And this is why it's important to remember that how a thing is said is important sometimes as what is said, particularly in the Psalms. Uh, Psalms are meant to evoke in you a similar spiritual disposition and even feeling or passion that the author is feeling. Um, and this is the case in Proverbs. Uh, particularly the case in Song of Songs and other wisdom literature. And finally, finally for me, because it does other things too, projecting a worldview. Um, all literature, I think all writing, even technical manuals, projects a worldview in somehow. In other words, somebody somehow is trying to tell you what they think reality is by what they are telling you in their writing. Sometimes this is uh, very explicit. Um, I think it's 2009. If you remember the, the movie Avatar, uh, who can't? Uh, but uh, this was, this was uh, Russ Douthat, the Catholic commentator for the New York Times, pointed out that this is, this is the common uh, religious view of Hollywood, which is the New Age pantheistic view. And it, and it taught that very well. But some are are not that obvious, I mean, but every form of literature, every form of art is somehow trying to project a worldview that is teaching you what reality is, uh, sometimes directly, more directly. Um, oh gosh, his name slipped my name, that Star Wars guy, George Lucas, um, explicitly said he was trying to create a new mythology for, for teaching us about reality. Um, last but not least, um, and I think, yep, so I, I had more to add to this, but I'll leave it at this right now, and if I have time, I'll come back to uh, this before we get into Proverbs next week. So Proverbs is about managing your life well. Uh, Job is about when that doesn't work. The limits of wisdom. You know, sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, Ecclesiastes is, I could say, when it really doesn't work, but it's really about the fact that the world is never enough. You will never find fulfillment, eternity, satisfaction completely. Uh, Mick Jagger was right so many years ago. I can't get no satisfaction. But I try, and I try, and Ecclesiastes, he tries, and he tries, and he tries, and he tries, and of course everything is meaningless. So anyway, um, and the Song of Solomon is about true romance. It's about uh, intimacy, including physical intimacy and sexuality. Um, it has some intimations that are theological, but it is not, and I will talk about those when we get to them, but they are, uh, it is not an allegory of Christ's love for the church or God's love for Israel. And so next week, we'll go ahead and start on the book of Proverbs. Um, we'll do an introduction and then we'll look at topics in Proverbs. Okay, well, 
the time has passed, but uh, I'm not going anywhere right away. So if you have any questions, feel free to ask them either right now or you can um, just come up and ask me. Anybody have any questions real quick? No, so, so as I used to say to my students when they didn't have any, either, either I was completely clear and you don't need to ask any questions or I was totally unclear and I didn't get it across well enough for you to even know enough to ask any questions. So, one way or the other. Anyway, thank you very much. We'll continue next week.